Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about the passage of the EU withdrawal bill through the Commons this week. We talk with John Crace about the art of a sketch. And finally, is the culture war getting better or worse? Let's talk about Brexit. Yep. See, that's my new slogan. I hope you really want to get used to that because you're going to be hearing a lot more of it over the next 20 to 30 years of your life. Stephen, there was a bill, the EU withdrawal bill, the great repeal bill, I guess, as it once was in the mists of time. Uh, was it? So I get, it was, but I, I get very sort of stern about this. It should never have been... been the adjectives it, are not it allowed. It repeals nothing. Like, oh, okay. I thought you were going to argue about the great, not oh, the no, repeal. So, so there were many problems with the great repeal bill. One is you're not allowed to put adjectives. Yeah, I in, know. Otherwise, we'd have the Michael Gove is a legend in bill. Co- in, in common bills, which yeah, does avoid the kind of US style, you know, like... Freedom. The happy child bill. Yeah. But actually, the more important thing is you, you, you can't have a title that doesn't reflect something about the contents right you can you can have something like you know like increasing government transparency and then lots of it you can be like does this make government transparent really but you can't have a bill which doesn't really repeat well anyway anyway let's not get hung up on that because it's not called that anymore it's called the eu withdrawal bill and it definitely is a bill about withdrawing from the eu which is exactly why everyone's getting their knickers in a twist about it right so Theresa May has decided to kind of have a big political moment of saying, like, I'm going to enshrine in law the very date we leave the EU. But we're leaving at midnight Brussels time, right? So we're leaving at 11pm UK time, which has already made people get very upset that this is the last flourish of the hated Eurocrat. Yeah, although, I mean... So the, the thing about the EU withdrawal bill is the, 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 what it effectively does, right? The, the headline measure of, of the bill, if you were describing it in one line, is... It repeals the automatic process whereby European directives enter in. So it does repeal stuff. Okay, it does repeal some stuff. But more importantly, it then adds all of the existing European law into British law. But what it does is it ends the automatic conveyor belt of future Mm law. Now, not to reopen old wounds, right, but there were two good and obvious levers that MPs could pull to take some control over the process. The first was, of course, Article 50. The second was the Queen's Speech. The EU withdrawal bill, it's slightly more complex because... So this was either don't vote for Article 50 to be triggered now, essentially, or put an amendment down to the Queen's Speech or cause the Queen's Speech to fall. Uh, Yeah, it's less... Which the Tory rebels said they wouldn't do because it was Chuck Mooner's amendment was a Labour amendment and they, they were keeping their powder dry. Yeah, and I think, yeah, there are... Many things about the conduct of of that particular approach. Uh, yeah, I wrote about some of them 
in the standard. I wasn't very flattering about it, and, and I think that's still true about the way some Labour Remainers approach the organisational side of it. But it remains the case that a lot of other people, both the Conservative and the Labour Party, I don't think have quite understood how little time there is left for Parliament to effectively involve itself. Now, like the entering the the date that we leave into law is a bit weird because we will leave at 11pm Brussels time regardless, right? That is not something which can be changed at the UK end, depending on whether or not you think... We could leave earlier than that. Like, I guess we could be like, no, I dumped you. Well, actually, this is the other interesting question, right? Let's say you do walk away saying, oh, we're not going to reach a deal. Actually, the slight weirdness is, okay, obviously at that point the markets would panic, right? But if I'm Theresa May and I say, oh, we're not going to reach a deal tomorrow, well, you don't jump out without a deal on the 16th of November. You then do still wait until the 29th of March. And I think... um. This is actually an observation that one of the commenters on my Facebook made and I'm just going to steal because I think it's a really useful way of thinking about it. The EU has a written constitution, the UK doesn't. And I suspect some of the slight confusion about the withdrawal bill and when MPs need to assert themselves is that there is an idea that, okay, well, if, if British MPs go, we don't want something, the unwritten constitution kind of like makes a weird rubbery sound and then absorbs the new will into its body. The Lisbon Treaty, a.k.a. the EU constitution, is not like that. If you do something and they do not follow the, 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 the rules, just keep happening, right? The process of leaving cannot be interrupted or guaranteed by going, yes, this, this will continue to happen. The interesting thing about it from a, a Theresa May perspective, right, and obviously I have been fairly unflattering about Theresa May, and I think that, if anything, 2017 has suggested that I was, if anything, being too generous. Really, in order for the I'm going to enshrine this into law to be what she means literally, she would have to be, I mean, just so thick that you could use her as a carbon rod. Just, you know, it just, it just is improbably dopey because... It's it, it's such an act of, of political violence towards Conservative MPs in heavily Remain-backing constituencies. And we know from the general election and local elections, etc., etc., that a disproportionate share of the non-voters who did not keep voting after 2016 in the referendum were Leave voters. So if you're an, an MP in a constituency which voted 50% to Remain... Actually, the bad news for you is that your electorate in 2017 was probably 55% remain. So you, what you don't want to do is vote for something that seemed to be a punitively pro-Brexit thing yeah. because you are disproportionately pissing off remain voters yeah, who so are more it, likely to turn out. It is un, and it's an unnecessary sort of ask for Conservative MPs who have who voted for most of the process. It doesn't do anything. Oh, it's just a load of old bollocks, Stephen. That's no. what most annoys me about the whole thing is why everybody seems intent on turning what could have been a bureaucratic process into some sort of mad, chest-beating extravaganza of macho pomposity. And that's what really... It just does it like yeah ah I mean, you can't yeah the whole I mean, it makes it just makes me really cross because so, it's just a lot of willy waving and so the I'm thing that some it. conservative remainers believe is that this must be a bait and switch and one conservative mp said to me 
I think she's stupid, but I don't think she's this stupid. This is the problem is this is an, a thesis that 2016, Donald Trump, maybe he's tweeting to distract us from the real story. And but, then it turned out, no, the guy just likes to tweet. Although actually, right, it's important. Just zoom out for a moment from the Brexit negotiations and the day to day and the like incredibly silly things that Theresa May says, right? And then look at what happens at every crunch point. You know, David Davis comes on and is like, oh, I'm a blagger, oh, oh, fight of the summer. And actually the sequencing was not the fight of the summer. The UK government beat its chest and talked about how there would not be a single penny piece, but then we went, actually, we are going to do Loads it. Loads of the, my huge mess. There the... won't be a transition deal. No, yeah. We'll have an implementation period instead. Yeah, it went from, you know, maybe we'll have a transition period if, you know, if to be kind to the others. Yeah. To, oh, yeah, we will have a two-year implementation period. Talking of stupid things that Theresa May said, though, her speech, was it the Lord Mayor's banquet on Monday night where she said, I think you pointed this out at the time, where she said, ah, oh, Russia, we'll stand against you because of the strength of our alliance with like-minded nations was pretty spectacularly self-owning, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I keep meaning to write write up write about that speech, and I should do that before the week is over. So I mean, I think it was actually to be nice to her. It was a brave speech to give, right? Which we have not got. If she's trying to curry favour with Donald Trump for a trade deal, I mean, already I think she's barking up a dead tree. That's not a metaphor, but you know what I mean? Because Donald Trump is incredibly protectionist. But it's certainly not a particularly popular thing to say with people outside the EU, although it might be, you know, get you some brownie points with Macron and Merkel. But I thought it was it was a, a undoubtedly correct speech and, and therefore quite a, a brave thing to kind of come out and say. I don't know. I disagree. So, OK, is it, is it true that uh, Russia uses disinformation and, and various other tactics to assert its will yes but it ought to be then the uk has sensibly gone oh wait a second this is gonna upset us with trump but we don't care but actually the problem is is that downing street has bought in completely hook line and sinker to this idea that they have influence with donald trump no one in the foreign office is really sure where this view has come from because they would point out that there is not a single concrete concession or achievement in the May-Trump relationship has Also, I just don't delivered. mean to be rude. I do mean to be rude, actually, but I don't think that's how Donald Trump's brain works. I mean, I don't think he's somebody... He's, you know, I'd, if he, you know, if you come in and you say, Donald, you're looking enormous today, your hands are vast, your hair is gleaming, you are the most powerful man in the world, then he'll probably do a tweet that says, Theresa May, brilliant, love her, great gal, great gams. But it's not like he has long-formed, well-thought-out strategic policy initiatives anyway, right? All, yeah, all of the evidence is that Trump parrots and adopts the opinions of the last person who he spoke to who impressed him. You should of, just pay off the... some anchor on Fox News to be really nice about you and how much you know you love Donald Trump, and then he'd like 10 minutes later he'll do a tweet about it. The best example of that is the US healthcare system, where he was shown round during the transition by Obama and he went, oh, maybe we'll keep parts of Obamacare. And everyone went, uh, wait, what a second. And then he sat down and talked with Mitch McConnell and went, oh, actually, when I said maybe we'd keep some of it, I meant we'd get rid of it. And so I don't think that that was a speech in which Theresa May bravely went, I'm going to set my face against the Trump deal. I do just think that Downing Street's understanding of, of Donald Trump is just not where it should be. You know, she does still. I mean, in her interview she did with Jason, where she was like, I got a commitment to NATO. And it's just like, oh, well, I mean, I'm terrified that you think that that commitment was I worth bet you got a bridge that he was selling you to. Anything. Yeah. But, yeah. but the, the other cell-phoning thing in the speech, right, is even if you think that, um, as I know a chunk of our listeners who presumably just like having perpetually high blood pressure do, that Brexit is a good thing, right? If you are also anti the Kremlin, you do have to have to reconcile the fact 
that the Kremlin thinks that Britain leaving the EU is brilliant and is really thrilled and it's happened. Which, you know, okay, you can... Quite a lot of Brexiters, maybe not so many, weirdly, maybe not so many Lexiters, are quite pro-Russia, right? I actually think most of our Brexit audience are actually right-wingers, but... um... Um, No, you're all special children and welcome to join us in this podcast bunker. No, but I mean, I'm talking about the kind of... When I'm... Yeah, we have to be careful here about separating out Brexit voters from what I think of as a kind of Brexit establishment to the Brexit elite. And that very much... Obviously, like Aaron Banks, Levy, you, Nigel Farage, they, you know, they think... Vladimir Putin, lad banter. Yeah, but they wouldn't give... I, I do think... I can't believe I'm about to say something positive about Nigel Farage. I'll have a wash afterwards. But actually, the one thing you can say in Nigel Farage's uh, defence is mm-hmm. his policy towards Putin is entirely consistent, right? He, he's basically gone, I don't think there's a problem here, therefore I think Brexit is great. However, a large chunk of the yeah. Brexit elite in the Conservative Party wants to have this weird position where they're going, it's really important for us to protect these Western alliances against Putin, apart from this one, which we're going to leave. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, this is part of a a broader uh, problem with Brexit, right? I'm really interested in... Conservatives do need to do need to somehow reconcile themselves to the fact that you have a situation in which you talk to the average pro-Brexit Conservative MP and they say, I'm terrified that Corbyn's going to become Prime Minister, destroy our economy and take us out of NATO. And they say, yeah, um, yeah we, we need to defend uh, free trade and we need to stand up to Putin. It's like, well, for Labour not to win the next election, they would they have to be the worst performing opposition in history. So I'm not saying that if the Conservatives don't do a disruptive Brexit, that won't happen, right? It would be really impressive for the Tory. Yeah, it would be historically unprecedented for the concert for the 2017 map yeah just as it would have been historically unprecedented for jeremy corbyn to do better than the result he got in 2017 which was an astonishing result considering uh 2015 he would have to have an astonishing result but the other way yeah it would have to be astonishing in the reverse direction not to turn that into some form of governing proposition next time there is no way you can you can achieve that if you're the Conservative Party if you have a Canada-style or other dislocative uh, Brexit. There is ditto no way that you can stand up and go, oh, Putin will never let you succeed in any of your aims while you're making your central political project something that Putin likes, a.k.a. Brexit. And then the third thing, which I cannot remember than the conserv- than I've said that the Conservatives need to reconcile with it. But, oh, oh, and then basically you can't go, oh, I love free trade me, free trade's the bomb, while leaving... A massive free trade bloc. The largest and nearest free trade bloc. In the future, there'll be more free trade than you could kind of shake a stick at. There's definitely going to be a couple of years where we actually have to sort out all of those deals. Because what was it? Canada took seven years? Yeah. And Johnny Reynolds, uh, the Labour MP for Staley Bridge and somewhere else. Hyde. Hyde. Yeah, kind of speaks the other day. He was just like, you know, there is this refusal to accept among a lot of Conservative Leavers that a large chunk of Leave voters, including actually... Yeah, because we, we, we talk far too much, actually, about the minority of non-affluent Leave voters and not anywhere near enough about the fact that Aylesbury voted to Leave. But actually, the average Leave voter, regardless of how well-off they were, was mostly voting for less globalisation, not more. And at some point, the Conservatives are going to have to have a conversation about the fact that their political, strategic and electoral objectives cannot be reconciled with their Brexit objectives. Are they, though, Stephen? Are they? We'll oh. return to that in another podcast. <laughs> Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And now we're joined by The Guardian's parliamentary sketchwriter, John Crace, also the author of the new book, I Maybot, which is out with Guardian Faber Publishing now. Let's start with PMQ's review. It's not always been the greatest contest of fireworks between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. What was it like this week? Not quite the race to the bottom that it sometimes is, but of late, Jeremy Corbyn has felt like he's raised his game, he's been more focused. But today it felt like he was wanted to give Theresa May a break, and he went back to reprising all his greatest hits, universal credits, fire uh, cuts, uh, police cuts, whether to build new homes, and the whole thing seemed to just lose focus, and Theresa May was able to refer to her one-line answers and, you know, acquitted herself quite competently. It does feel like the whole event has become increasingly bad-tempered, not in a kind of dramatic way, but just in a, it goes on. It's your time you're wasting kind of but way. It go, it never, it's never less than 45 minutes now. But um, is that not the sort of John Burko punishment PMQs, right? Is that he's doing it that deliberately to get everyone a, a go? I think there's that. And I also think it sort of feeds his own vanity as well, that it's not just PMQs, but it's at his pleasure if you like you know he is his majesty and this is his pleasure how often does um brexit come up at pmqs because it's notoriously a subject that labor has got a, a little bit of difficulty in finding its line on well almost never mm. um not not certainly not from jeremy corbyn he he have steers clear of it like the sort of plague i mean presumably because he doesn't know what he feels about it himself and you can sort of sense the frustration on the labor benches that here is an opportunity to exploit conservative weakness. And he just avoids it at every turn. I mean, the one interesting uh, contribution we had, uh, a Tory, uh, Mike Tomlinson, stood up and invited uh, the Prime Minister, in a, in a sense, in a roundabout way, to condemn the Daily Telegraph, the Brexit mutineers headline. And she sidestepped that quite nicely. Clearly, you know, she knows where her allies are and she doesn't want to make sort of enemies of the, da- of the not the Dakers, um, the Barclay brothers. Well, I don't think she wants to make an enemy of Paul Dacre either, really. No. Although she went to talk at his, um, what is it, 25 years of editing the mail. So presumably there's a bit of credit in that bank. So, yeah, when you're when you're doing the, the sketch, you're obviously you, you are kind of the creator of the sort of the Mabel idea, which is now kind of, you know, taken as as Dawkins would say it's one of those memes and has gained its sort of own kind of half-life when you're sitting in the chamber having to file kind of something which both sums up the day but is also kind of amusing and diverting what's the creative process behind writing a parliamentary sketch for you well the first thing is always to be entertaining so I suppose that is the first pressure that you've got to come up with a few kind of good lines that if not you know an outright laugh, at least a sort of wry smile somewhere. 
But I also like to try and create a narrative. I think the sketch should be more than just entertainment. It should have a kind of moral purpose to it. I mean, the best satire is about holding power to account. And, you know, in these times, it feels more important than ever. And if you like the sketches, uh, I feel kind of very privileged to be doing it because it allows you to write the subtext um, to, you know, the, the text that gets missing, if you like. I mean, you can point, point up the discrepancies and the hypocrisy and the things that get omitted, really, and sort of bring them to the surface and into the conversation in the way that straight reportage can't. I think that's one of the nicest things about having particularly a print column, which you don't really get replicated through online op-eds or even blogs, is is that sense of returning to the same themes and returning to the same characters. And you can build up some people, you're like, oh, let's drop in on our old friend X. Who are your favourite characters in the Commons, either positively or negatively? Who are the people who really stand out to you that you always want to write about? Well, I, I tend to want to sort of obviously the cabinet figures because they are they are the kind of the main fulcrum of events, really. So there is Theresa May, Phil Hammond, Boris Johnson, Amber Rudd. You know, um, they are sort of key figures. Is it hard to write about Philip Hammond because he's quite boring and sensible? No, I've tried. I've sort of tried to reinvent him as freewheeling Phil from the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, which <laughs> right. those of a certain vintage will sort of remember. This kind of sort of rather kind of laid back hippie dude, because I feel that he has sort of gone slightly off message and gone sort of feral slightly these days. He he was expecting to be sacked in June after the election. And, you know, so he has taken positive delight in Theresa May's weakness and losing the majority. And so he feels as Chancellor, he can sort of do whatever he likes now. And so it's almost you get the feeling that he's making up policy on the hoof with, you know, doesn't bother to consult Theresa May, doesn't bother to consult Amber Rudd. You know, it's just his preserve. And I kind of quite like that sort of behind the sort of spreadsheet fill is this sort of sort of freewheeling character desperate to get out. Yeah, like I like the idea he's sort of sitting in the treasury and he kind of loosens the tie and gets a bottle of whiskey out of the desk and sort of thinks like, right, um, what am I going to do today? Yeah. He does have, I mean, I always have this weird affection for Philip Hammond because he's got an accent from a part of the world which I'm from and know very well, etc., etc. But he does always have that slight vibe of someone who you, you whenever they go oh, he likes fast cars and it's like yeah you 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 can tell i also not... think he's got that thing that ken clark's got which is that he is as you say i always think ken clark's in the his yolo years right where he's just like mm, i'm ken clark i do what i want which is a, a micro version of that i guess is happening yeah. with philip hammond he's like well sack me then come on bring it on and i also i also i mean i don't often go into their sort of personalities other than how they reflect their politics but i think there's something quite vain about philip hammond as well i think he gets up looks at himself in the mirror and says, yes, I like it. <laughs> um, one final question, which is about select committees, which are a part of your work as well. There's been a lot of talk recently, I think, about how much more important they become as a kind of forum for scrutiny. I try and watch select committees quite often, but, I mean, there is a, they're a great place for the kind of low-key, very nerdy shade, right? You know, that's, someone would just say something incredibly cutting to someone else that only about 20 people understand. But are they more fun to watch than, than they sometimes appear? Yes, I always make a point of looking through what's, what, what the action is there. You know, obviously, as a sketch writer, you have to sort of choose between... I mean, 
PMQs, an urgent question, a statement on this, or a great debate. But um, the select committees are a great source of fun because ministers there get ask questions that they can't avoid. In the Commons, you get asked, they get asked one question and they cannot give an answer. And there is no redress, really. Even at PMQs, all that Theresa May has got to do is not answer a question six times, and she's out of there, really. That just doesn't wash in the committee. And it was certainly true during uh, the Brexit referendum that the re- I, I found the most enlightening moments were all coming from the Treasury Select Committee, where he would get George Osborne... Um, this is Andrew Tyree, the previous... Andrew Tyree, yeah. Um, he was get, quite an ogre, right? He had a, quite an ogreish reputation as somebody yeah. who really didn't take any nonsense. Yeah, and I mean, he clearly enjoyed that position of power as well, but he did use it well and sort of impartially because he exposed sort of George Osborne's project fear economics, but he absolutely took apart Boris Johnson. I mean, he basically accused him of sort of just lying and making up numbers, really, which... Terrible. Oh, Terrible. Horrible to hear that kind of... Um, not that Boris took any notice. No, I imagine not. Well, thank you very much for joining us. As we said, the book is I, Maybot, and that was John Crace. And now for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Yeah, you do ask us. And this week, David, David Ralph, has written in to say, is the culture in the UK worse than it's ever been, or has it always been this bad? I'm thinking about the never-ending arguments about safe spaces and trigger warnings, Peter Hitchens and Charles Moore's deranged takes on the sexual harassment scandals, plus the monstering of Kate Maltby, Brexit as a proxy culture war, and the fact that I can't discuss politics with my parents anymore due to intergenerational bafflement and rage. Well, I, I'm not sure, given that two people who were born in the 80s are going to be able to give you a particularly long view. I was actually one. born in the 90s. What? I was born in 1990. I'm a pre-wall child. Post-wall child. <laughs> I did not. I assumed you were... Wow. Wow, you're like a fetus. Okay, well, as people born in the 80s and 90s, I don't think we can give a particularly long view. But I have I have a history degree, allegedly. Go on, then. I mean, admittedly, I never really went north of well, there are 1750, lot, yeah. so I really well, there don't are a lot know... Of culture I've... wars in the Napoleonic War, or <laughs> um, were people too busy having actual wars? If you're as cool as me and you look at old copies of the British Electoral Survey, right, culture has become more of a driving force in voting behaviour, literally in the last half decade. So, And the 27 US election, the data just came through from that last week, and it said that identity was a better predictor of voting intention than economics, right, which is a... Ma- and we've always said that class has declined as a kind of proxy for voting intention and identity, but this is now... It's now it's, in, in America, it is now completely settled. Yeah, but the thing is, in the US, that's been a much longer journey because of their kind of weird racial stuff. But the the fascinating thing that happened in 2017, and you can... There's an interesting question about how much it was things Corbyn did right and May did wrong, probably a bit of both, but that's sort of beside the point. This, one of the significant things which happened was basically socially liberal people voted Labour without prejudice to where they were on the income stream. I mean, one of the Conservative MPs from 2017 intake put it quite well to me, and they said, looking back, the moment when I realised none of my friends were voting for us should have been when I became worried. Do you know, I had a, a version of that, which is the which is the Corbyn surge, which is the moment that I should have really thought, hang on a minute, there's something going wrong, is, is every time I spoke to a commissioning editor in their 50s and they told me that their children were madly interested in politics and they loved Corbyn, right? Which is just as a level of enthusiasm among people. I'm not saying, obviously we know that actually 
Corbyn attracted people across the age scale, but just in terms of so many people sort of having that same anecdote, there was definitely something going on. And yeah, and basically at this election, social liberalism was a, was a much better predictor of why people voted the way they did than basically any other economic trend, e- e- even the sense. home ownership, which obviously was the other big factor in the election. That makes sense when you think about swapping out David Cameron, who was socially liberal, who's clearly somebody who had gay friends and was very relaxed about it, who was, you know, kind of borderline metrosexual, let's not get carried away here, for Theresa May, whose image very self-consciously from the start was about Christianity, which, you know, I know that there are socially liberal Christians, but and in, in the way that she wove that in together with the, some of the metropolitan liberal elite stuff, right? So actually, what you just had a a Tory party that probably moved needlessly to the right on social issues and actually it did not give them the huge dividend of ex-UKIPers that they thought it would. Well, the, yeah, the, the fascinating thing is, yeah, is what Spencer Livermore always says about Ed Miliband's campaign 2015. He said, oh, we had an ideological project to win power. We did not have a uh, electoral project based on what are we going to... Yeah, what, where, where do these voters live and what are we going to say to them? And obviously there was... There is an ideological project behind uh, Corbynism, but they also had an electoral project based around, you know, okay, so we know that we have a schools policy and so we therefore need to transmit this to, you know, young parents who watch GMTV. I know it's not called GMTV anymore, but you know what I mean. It's called, oh God, oh God, it's Piers Morgan, turn it off. Yeah, whatever whatever it's called. GMB. It always confuses me because that's the name of the union. Yeah, Yeah, they they, they knew that they had to get that message out. Whereas on the Nick Timothy, Theresa May side, they had an ideological project based on the idea that white working class voters should, in in their ideas, have voted conservative. And then the carrot they were going to wave to get those voters over was grammar schools and social illiberalism. That didn't work that well at attracting former Labour voters although they did attract some. The problem was is it worked a lot better at repelling 2015. Uh, you know, the, the votes they gained did not make up for the votes that they lost. So it, it clearly has got worse just because, you know, yeah, I might... I think there's another yeah. big reason why it's got worse, actually, which is which is Twitter. And I know we know of only a tiny percentage of the population is on Twitter, but nonetheless, most political journalists are on it. If you talk about things like safe spaces, that is the kind of place where those arguments are constantly being, you know, rehashed and regenerated. And therefore, they do just loom a lot larger. I think Hugo Rifkin was saying this about the influence of, of Russian propaganda. You know, it turns something that's a 5% issue into an 80% issue, right? You just see it in your vision a lot more. And therefore, you could easily end up with the idea that, you know, every student in the country is desperately frothing about no platforming people or, uh, you know, whatever. When is in fact, it's, you know, student politics has always been a, a minority pursuit. Yeah, the, the safe space, the safe space stuff on the Twitter thing is, is exactly right. So that, you know, that whole weirdness of them being like, we're against no platform. You know, simply put, most students don't care about. Well, Obviously, yeah. I'm, you know, fairly into to You no can't platform, get most students but, to go um, to lectures, let alone, you know, voluntary events that were, they attend outside the curriculum. Um, particularly because, I, know, I think one of the things in the Conservatives have hugely uh, misunderstood about that particular policy is anyone who, I mean, most people don't care, but most people who hear the word no platform will think that the Conservatives are talking about Combat 18. Even talking about kind of fascist and white Uh, supremacist and neo-Nazi groups. Um, So this argument of like, oh, you know, this, I I mean, I, I don't care because I don't pay attention to student politics because I have a job. 
There's not a lot of votes in, in it. There, there, are a lot, there aren't a lot of votes in it, but there is a problem of a tone of dislike from the Conservatives towards the young, which is unhelpful for them. But I think that factors into, in fact, as well, the kind of Russian disinformation, which you mentioned in the last section. There's a report came out this week that that picture of a, the woman in a hijab walking past a victim of the Westminster terror attack, that was tweeted by an account called, I think, at Texas Southern Star or something, like that, which purported to be a, you know, a US Southerner. Um, and the idea was that she, you know, as a Muslim, she doesn't care about the victims of Muslim terrorism because wink, wink, nudge, nudge, she's on their side. It was very quickly picked up by, I think, I'm going to say Tommy Robinson, a formerly of the English Defence League, who went through a big conversion where he said, I'm not far right anymore. And then he sort of slightly ruined it by going to that big march in Poland full of, like... Then he went and spoiled it all by saying something stupid like, I hate Jews. <laughs> <laughs> Please address your complaints to the usual address. Thank you for that, Stephen. That was an account that then came out in the uh, US investigation into Russian election influence as being one that was not almost certainly linked to Russia, almost certainly not from somebody from the US, and had also tweeted about the EU referendum, about the idea that there was a European caliphate. So this is fascinating. So I got into another Twitter fight at the weekend after I've, you know, and I've said this before that I think that the phrase turf has just become a stand in for the word bitch because almost no one knows what it means and it's only ever really applied to women. And I was really surprised because I just got a stream of, of, of abusive messages that said like lol shot up turf because there were so many of them I could see that the account names were very suspicious there were lots of stuff that had like punch Nazis in the title or like diabetes which is a reference to a 4chan campaign where they tried to rename Mountain Dew the soft drink and one of the flavours that they suggested was diabetes another one was Hitler was right so I just think there is a, a huge injection by people like 4chan so hoaxer groups maybe US right Republicans we know that there were some PACs that were funding anti-Clinton attacks for being insufficiently you know, pro-LGBT in an attempt to split the left, and maybe Russian state actors as well. You know, obviously, I, I think some sometimes the Remain side particularly veers into conspiracy theories where they want to believe that actually everyone was just hoodwinked by a vast you know, Cambridge Analytica and Russia conspiracy, and, that's, and actually people weren't pro-Brexit at all. But there has, you know, in terms of just raising, make some issues, make, you know, injecting kind of poison and anger into the debate, I do think there are either bot accounts or human accounts of people just doing that a lot on Twitter. Yeah. And that distorts our whole, because lots of journalists are on it, it distorts our whole media conversation about stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, it's always very tempting for people to kind of, and I think a lot of the reaction to uh, things like the referendum campaign has listed into the, these people disagree with me because they're, uh, they're robots. But because it does, it is influential for what the media writes about, it does set the tone. But I think the other reason why it has got worse is social conservatism in this country tends to be the failure state of late state of conservative governments. Um, That's interesting. Uh, oh, in the sense of like back to basics where John Major goes, oh, the money supply is bad. Um, back Let's to basics, have... tightening Commonwealth immigration in 63. You kind of, you know, a kind of late stage thing that conservative governments do, partly because, you know, the economy tends to be going badly or yada, yada, yada. Because, you know, the wonderful thing about social liberalism, it, it doesn't cost you anything to let people uh, live the, the lives they want to. Although the bad side is that social authoritarianism is also quite cheap if you're a government which uh, which wants to, to assert itself somehow. And I think then the reason why one of the reasons why the culture war stuff clearly is moving people in a way it didn't used to is that when William Hague would say things and felt beyond the pale for a lot of social liberals, they were in opposition. The Tories were kind of funny. They were a bit of a joke. The Tories are a bit of a joke in many ways, but they are not funny because they're in office. 
And so the culture war stuff feels more acute. But you've also got a declining media that has really seen revenues completely evaporate. And I'm sure every time that the, you know, the, the, for, for the Mail and the Telegraph to continue to maintain their circulations, which are falling, then actually having a huge amount of publicity, everybody talking about their front page is a, is a useful thing. In the same way that publishing a troll piece that says, sexual harassment, it's just women complaining, why can't they man up like we did in the 70s, probably gets you a huge number of hate clicks, right? Which if you're running an advertising-based business model is is quite important. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. We're produced by Caroline Crampton and recorded by India Borg. Our music is Devil by De- the Devil and is licensed under Creative Commons. My morning email is near another pleasingly round number. So if you care about base 10 systems and getting the news in an accessible format, sign up to the Staggers Morning Call. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.